historic labor strike against the three largest car manufacturers in the U.S. enters its fifth day today, and it could grow in size by the end of the week. The president of the UAW union warns more workers will be... Writers and producers may be zeroing in on a deal to end a writer's strike that's lasted months. Uh, David Faber uh, joins us now. I, I guess it's not totally out of the blue. Did you have an inkling uh, before you started hearing about this yesterday that, that there was, I, I, I was uh, pessimistic? Well, all we're asking is for everybody to be fair. That's it. Just fair. And, uh, you know, everything's gone up but our wages. And so it's like, uh, you know, we're all not Tom Cruise. Let's see it. Don't forget, when the uh, auto companies were in trouble, it was the workers who bailed them out right alongside the American public. And they took incredible concessions, including this tier system that means that some of the workers, the majority of the workers actually, are making far less pay, do not have the secure retirement, do not have the secure health care in their retirement. And they're fighting to end all of that. They're fighting to turn around the wrong direction that this company, that this country has been going in. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Alfie and Flash, Asshole, Bree X, Cindy S, David MJ, Michael Jackson, Goat, Glenn, G Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Polo F, just kidding, Maria from Puerto Rico, Matthew, and Michelle H. This is a critique, not a criticism. A difference without a distinction? Perhaps. But I think it's an important conversation that we need to have. Oh, well then, have at it. Well, thanks. Let's talk about the good, the bad, and the reality of union actions in the United States. Here's my thesis statement. While there are multiple high-profile labor actions happening across the United States at this moment, there is no such thing as a labor movement. Yo, did you hear that? What? It's the sound of unfuckers unsubscribing in mass. Hopefully I've built a little more equity than that at this point. Here's the thing. What Sean Fain, the head of the United Auto Workers Union, is doing right now is a masterclass in disruption. I'm a fan. The UAW revealed a hardcore strategy to send workers to the picket lines at all three of the major Detroit-based automakers. About 13,000 workers in all. And nothing I'm about to say should take away from this show of strength and solidarity. But... But... If we add these 13,000 to the most recent figures as of August, this brings the national total to somewhere around 325,000 workers who are out on strike. That's no good? Well, it depends how you define good. The auto workers join the striking members of both the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild, who have been out since the middle of the summer. Now, SAG and WGA represent a little more than 170,000 of the 325,000, or a little more than half. These are hard and fast numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS. In the newsletter this week, and in the essay for the episode on the website, I built a simple chart that looks back over several important years in the United States. 1949, 68, 90, 09, 
2022 and so far this year. So let's go back. The BLS officially began tracking work stoppage data in 1947, so I went out a couple of years to 1949 to allow the data to mature. By this time, the GI Bill was five years old, the wartime economy had come to an end, and the country was experiencing a brief recession. Unemployment peaked during this year as well. Workers expressed their displeasure with 262 work stoppages involving 2.5 million workers, which was 4.2% of the workforce at the time. Now fast forward to 1968, one of the most tumultuous times in American history. 362 work stoppages involving 1.8 million workers, or 2.3% of the workforce. There were 44 stoppages involving 184,000 workers, or 0.15% of the workforce, in 1990. 23 stoppages in 2022 involving 120,000 workers, or 0.07% of the workforce. And so far this year, we have now 325,000 or so workers out on strike in 21 separate actions, 0.19% of the workforce. That's a lot of numbers. Yes, well, the bottom line is, during times of economic distress, labor has wielded the power of the strike to reckon with the corporate class to varying degrees of success. If we go back further than our 1949 start date, labor actions in the United States were even more severe and so was the response to them. But rather than litigate the rise of organized labor from the mid-19th century through the Depression, I think it's more instructive to look at the working-class struggles in the post-war period when the United States emerged as the hegemonic power in the world. Then again, it wouldn't be me if I didn't add a little historical flavor to the equation. There's that sound again. Nonsense. One of the reasons we went on such a deep dive of socialism was to call attention to the divide between organized labor and the leftist political movements. Nowhere was this divide more extreme than in the United States. Take the story of Eugene Debs, for example. Debs was perhaps the greatest champion of union labor in U.S. history. There will be labor historians that might take exception with this statement, but I'll stand by it until taught otherwise. And though Debs became the face of the Socialist Party, running for president four times, he never abandoned his roots as a labor organizer. But even though he was beloved by the working class, he was unable to bridge the divide between trade unions and industrial unions, let alone the political class. We even covered how it was Samuel Gompers of the AFL who ultimately sold Debs and the socialists down the river to split the labor vote in Debs' last two bids for the presidency. But the U.S. isn't alone in this distinction. Fissures between the left political class and organized labor were commonplace throughout Europe as well. And that strikes at the heart of the thesis here today. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Ryan F., Snail Powered, Sultan, Terry C., The Younger PDX Squatch, Video Eng Alex. I don't know what that is. Video Eng Alex? Video Eng? I don't know. Someone tell me. W. Jeremy D., and the memory of Nettie McGee. Let's leave Europe behind for a moment and focus on the U.S. If we think about union struggles in the U.S., they have always been in sync with capitalism. In fact, they are very much in support of one another. <laughs> You're really treading on thin ice, man. Hear me out. Think about what the unions today are fighting for. Pretty fundamental stuff. Better benefits, higher wages, more paid time off, paid family leave, improved working conditions generally. So when the UAW yells about the billions spent in stock buybacks, it's framed as greedy and wasteful because those funds could otherwise be used to incentivize workers. 
They even go so far as to say clearly that those very profits are the result of the workers' labor, not the executives or the shareholders. And then the corporate mouthpieces are trained to respond like this. Well, you know, when you talk about executive comp, for instance, my, my comp, over 92% of the compensation is performance length. In addition to the 20% um, increases in salaries that we have on the table right now, our employees have been enjoying profit sharing for several years, and, and through the last few years, it's been uh, record profit sharing. This is GM CEO Mary Barra. There's two parts to her response. The first is the idea of executive compensation based on incentives. So let's talk comp. In 2022, her base salary was $2 million, but her compensation was $29 million. She's raked in more than $200 million since 2014. Over at Ford, by the way, things are pretty much the same. Ford CEO James Farley made about $21 million in 2022. And in case you're wondering, he is indeed the late Chris Farley's cousin. Awesome. <laughs> anyway, when these CEOs talk about incentives, they're talking about share price. That brings us to the other part of the equation. The best way to increase shareholder value and stock price these days? Mm, stock buybacks. You got it. In fact, the GM board authorized the company to increase the buyback threshold in 2022 from $3.5 billion to 5 So not only did car prices increase upwards of 35% after the pandemic, not only did corporations take in money from the federal government to get through the pandemic, they used a bunch of all of this money to buy back shares. That's what she means by performance. Now, the other half of the equation is the profit-sharing piece that the employees received. GM was pretty boastful in 2021 that their profit-sharing plan put an extra $12,000 check on average into the pocket of every GM auto worker. Not bad. All told, it was about $500 million spread among the employees who averaged about $80,000 in compensation normally. According to the Social Security Administration, the average national wage index per person in 2021 was about 60000 So GM's perspective is, hey, we're paying more than the national average, and you got a piece of the profit, so what's your problem? And there are a fair number of Americans who live without union protections who look at that stance and kind of agree. Though there is more support for unions today than any time in my personal memory. But let's get more to the point here. That $500 million split among workers in a profit-sharing plan sounds great. About $500 million spread among 40,000 eligible workers based on profits against $27 million allocated for just one person based on stock performance. In the same financial period, GM boasted a $17 billion profit. So the profit sharing that went to the employees was about 3% of the total profits. Whereas the shareholder buyback, that $5 billion was about 30%. That's why the UAW is calling bullshit and so should you. So should everyone. But that's still not the larger point. But wait, there's more. Let's level set quickly on a few definitions. Having never been in a union myself, there are concepts that I don't live with and therefore kind of take for granted, but they're really important to nail down, though I suspect that they'll be pretty familiar to most in the audience. Let's briefly refresh from our labor union episode and our socialism series on just a handful of concepts. Trade union, industrial union, collective bargaining, and right to work, primarily. So, trade unions are often referred to as craft unions. They are specific to a particular job or a vertical in an industry. Iron workers, teachers, cops, actors, auto workers. If you belong to one of these unions, 
Whether you're in the physical trades or the service sector, you're part of a trade union. Industrial unions have classically been defined as any and all workers, at least in the Marxist sense. Members of an entire class would be eligible. It evolved in many countries to incorporate workers within an entire industry. So in the United States, the better example are like Teamsters, right? So originally freight drivers, Teamsters unions grew to incorporate different aspects of freight and logistics like, let's say, warehouse workers. So that became the definition of industrial unions in the United States. Okay. There are also public sector trade unions to represent government employees and credit unions, which were designed to manage the financial affairs first and foremost of large corporations, but evolved to take in members of designated groups to own the institution itself. But when we think about organized labor, when we talk about strikes and work stoppage actions and negotiating benefits and pay raises, we're typically talking about unions that represent specific trades. At least that's how it's conflated in the media. Collective bargaining is another term that is thrown around casually, but it also deserves a little unpacking for context. For example, nearly two-thirds of the workforce in the United States is technically covered by collective bargaining. That's where employees are free to join a group to bargain with corporate ownership for compensation and benefits. This process was guaranteed to all American workers by the National Labor Relations Board Act of 1935, part of the suite of programs that came into existence during the Depression. But we don't all collectively bargain with the owner class in this way, because it's a feature of union membership. See, the idea was to establish hard and fast rules for employees to meet and determine whether or not to form a union or join a union for such purposes. In theory, these meetings and decisions would be totally unfettered by ownership. Along the way, of course, the capitalist class pushed back on this, specifically in 1947 with the passage of Taft-Hartley. Now, let's dip back into our union episode as a refresher. Here's a passage from the book State of the Union by Nelson Lichtenstein. Quote, the new law codified the union hostile status quo in the Cotton South and the entrepreneurial Southwest, especially after most states in these regions took advantage of Section 14B to ban the union shop and enact, quote, right to work statutes. Such laws had a twofold purpose. They kept the unions financially and organizationally fragile, but even more important, they represented an ideological onslaught of the first order. Because now the rights of anti-union workers were given the same moral weight as those loyal to the union idea. Likewise, another Taft-Hartley revision of the Wagner-era labor law gave to employers the right to, quote, free speech during NLRB elections. Given the employment power wielded by management, such anti-union speech was normally indistinguishable from intimidation. But once again, the real issue was not the technical definition of speech, but the devaluation of the idea of worker self-organization independent of managerial influence." End quote. Taft-Hartley gave corporations the ability to create hostile organizing conditions. It protected all forms of intimidation and smear campaigns. At the depth of the Great Depression, when the NLRB Act was introduced, union membership hovered around 12%. By the time Taft-Hartley was passed, about a third of U.S. workers were in a union. Now, since Taft-Hartley, it's been on a steady and precipitous decline. Union membership in the United States is now 10%, which is below where we were in the Great Depression prior to the NLRB even coming into existence. That's how far we've fallen and why I cannot in good conscience call what is happening today a movement. 1949, one third of all Americans were unionized. 
the United States was about to go on a 25-year economic tear with workers participating in the upside. I mean, that year alone, 262 work stoppages involving 2.5 million workers, more than 4% of the entire workforce. That's a movement. Going from 0.07% last year to 0.19% so far this year is an uptick. It's not even a trend. It's a rounding error. Contrast that with the breathless media coverage on both sides of the political aisle. Liberal media, mostly in support of the workers in a way that we admittedly haven't seen in a while. Conservative media is basically saying it's the end of the world. And usually the truth can be found somewhere in the middle, except the real truth isn't even on this same spectrum. Again, think about the gains workers seek. Increased pay to cover the cost of living adjustments. Fairer wages in the face of landmark corporate profits. Better benefits like paid time off, paid family leave, subsidized childcare, better health benefits. Best case scenario, the 0.19% of workers asking for these things get everything they want. And maybe it encourages 10 or 20,000 more workers to do the same thing. But that's not a movement. That's a blip. When workers in Denmark ask for more, it's more than a blip. Manny, what percentage of the workforce in Denmark is unionized? 67%. How about Sweden? 70%. Finland? 74%. But hold on a sec. What about the French people you love so much? Only 8% of the workforce in France is unionized. True, but 98% are covered by collective bargaining. And when the French workers don't get their way, they organize very quickly. They take to the streets and they literally burn shit to the ground. The workers in France have created a completely different culture, one that does not exist here in the United States. They never stopped stoking the flames of a revolutionary labor movement. Okay, but doesn't that get us into the whole conversation about American exceptionalism, innovation, freedom, entrepreneurship, and all that jazz? Typically, yes, but even this is a distraction. And we've said it a thousand times before, the corporate class likes to point to innovation and entrepreneurship as the reason that we can't have unions, that we can't have taxes or regulations, basically anything that would crush the entrepreneurial spirit of American business people. It's horseshit. Ah, horseshit! Pharmaceutical drugs, chemicals, the internet, renewable energy, fossil fuels, artificial intelligence, weapons of mass destruction, all built by public investment and government programs and spread to the private sector for iteration and expansion, but not origination and innovation. That said, I don't want to get too off topic from the original thesis. There was an original thesis? Very funny. <laughs> All right, yeah, right, go on. There is no labor movement in the United States. The benefits sought by the working class are derivative of the capitalist system. They're elements of the wage slavery that Bakunin, Proudhon, and Luxembourg pointed out over 100 years ago. When Marxists and syndicalists argued for a dictatorship of the proletariat, it didn't imply violence in the way that we associate with the word dictatorship these days. It literally just meant control and ownership. It doesn't mean that the UAW isn't fighting for a more fair and just outcome within the capitalist system. It is. But it's wild to think that even victory in this fight only further serves to harden and calcify the rules of engagement between the classes and to fix the system in place. I'm not saying that they shouldn't fight the good fight. Moreover, the WGA and SAG have added an important layer to the narrative by fighting for the creative economy. 
Beyond the fact that they make up more than half of striking workers, the high-profile nature of their work keeps labor in the public eye. The flip side, and by flip side I don't mean downside, the flip side to this is that a creative work stoppage affects the creators, the companies that they work for to be sure, and the shareholders of these companies. But it doesn't bring the supply chain to a grinding halt, doesn't increase prices at the pump or cause pain in a way that makes average Americans uncomfortable. It's just really going to make for shitty TV, right? But in so many ways, that makes their struggle all the more courageous because they're fighting for something much bigger than themselves in almost a sacrificial way. If every healthcare worker, every educator, every sanitation worker collectively walked off the job in protest of the capitalist class, now that would signify a change, a movement. But when a fraction of a fraction of the workforce has the guts to stand up against the corporate class, they might stand to gain a little, but they risk a lot more in the process. Okay, can I ask you a question though? Yeah, shoot. So I dig your thesis, I get it. But what's your point? Okay, fair question. The point is that I now have a greater appreciation for Marxist theory of class struggle and labor than ever before. And at the same time, I cannot help but be pragmatic and to state the obvious. Here's where we can go back to the lessons from our socialism series. A great number of things have to come together to create the conditions for revolution. This is what all the great theorists were trying to figure out, right? And I think it's fair to say that the working class is a fundamental part of the revolutionary equation, even today. There's also the legal system. Look at how the Federalist Society has torn apart the courts. There's also what's taught in schools. Look at PragerU being added to curriculums. And we're back to banning books, for Christ's sake. Interest groups from disparate regions need to be organized and work collaboratively toward a stated purpose. Shared messaging, political movements, social movements, protests, or outright riots. Catalyzing and potentially catastrophic and maybe unpredictable events that thread them all together and a bureaucratic apparatus capable of seizing power from below to implement reform and manage systems. You need all of this to effectively create the conditions for revolution. But none of this, none of this happens without class consciousness. And how do you raise the consciousness of a class that doesn't even know it exists? See, the working class used to be an identity. Now it's a talking point and a historical reference. I mean, what even defines working class? Household income? Occupation? Perhaps the worst lie ever told is the so-called American dream because it's convinced millions of wage slaves that if they hustle, if they keep grinding 24-7, 365, they can break out in the land of opportunity and get what's theirs. Day job, Uber driver at night, weekend influencer, keep hustling, keep grinding. Just don't call yourself working class because that's your grandparents. And don't let the woke agenda of the left keep you from reaching your dreams. Make your bed. Hit the gym. Work hard. Play hard. Hustle. Grind. Get yours. Keep yours. And close the door behind you. CEOs making 400 times the average employee. I heard schools are putting litter boxes and bathrooms for kids who identify as cats. Inflation due to corporate greed and price gouging. Yo, Tucker Carlson said Barack Obama's gay. Jackass. Corporations invested in student loan programs lobby to have the courts reverse debt cancellation. Everyone knows mermaids are white, but Disney's gone all woke. Are you not Divert. Distract. Repeat. The American dream has poisoned class consciousness. 13% of the workforce in the new economy works remotely. 
29% have hybrid positions. 36% of the workforce is considered, quote, independent, which means they're gig workers, freelancers, contract workers, and part-timers. 61% of Americans say they're living paycheck to paycheck. The capitalist system has sliced and diced us and broken us apart. We're periodically united by authentic wrongs, such as George Floyd, or a manufactured crisis, like January 6th. But even these don't last, because we're busy, gotta hustle, gotta grind. The other feature of the capitalist system is even more underhanded. Capitalism is like a mysterious conductor. It has no face, no name, but it sets the tone and the rhythm. It knows when we have just a little too much in our wallets. So it knows when to pick our pockets. And it knows when we're up against a wall. So maybe unemployment lasts a few weeks longer this time. Maybe there's a check in the mail, a pause on debt collecting. So you can get back on your feet. Get back to the hustle. Back to the grind. It's always been that way. An election about to swing one way during a recession, then all of a sudden, a brief recovery. A bumper crop. Government contracts come through. Maybe a tax cut. But not for you, for them, the owners, the employers, the job creators. Hang on just long enough, it'll trickle down to you. So what to do, what to do? Even if all the conditions required to ignite a revolution were in place, who would revolt if the masses are separated, both physically and spiritually? A class cannot gain consciousness if it doesn't know it exists. The Biden NLRB recently made the most historic ruling since Taft-Hartley, and that's not an exaggeration. Here's a summary from the NLRB website. Quote, Under the new framework, when a union requests recognition on the basis that a majority of employees in an appropriate bargaining unit have designated the union as their representative, an employer must either recognize and bargain with the union or promptly file an RM petition seeking an election. However, if an employer who seeks an election commits any unfair labor practice that would require setting aside the election, the petition will be dismissed And rather than rerunning the election, the board will order the employer to recognize and bargain with the union, end quote. I cannot overstate this. This is one of the most significant developments in American labor in my lifetime, to be sure. It's more than just a warning shot. It's a blow to any corporation that attempts to shut down union organizing attempts. Of course, a decision from this Biden-appointed board can just as easily be reversed under a new GOP administration. And I can guarantee that this would be immediate. So we should look at this as temporary. Meaningful, but temporary. This ruling, actors and writers drawing outsized attention to worker grievances and inequality, the masterful job the UAW is doing to force the automaker's hands. The left finally showing some level of solidarity with union organizers. This is all good stuff. But remember, at 0.19%, you cannot call it a movement. Capitalism is still winning, going away. Moreover, any victories within the system is an acknowledgement of a fixed power dynamic. So what else is out there? I know there are tons of unfuckers who share my enthusiasm for Professor Wolf and the Democracy at Work organization. And I'm providing a link to the new Democracy at Work website that has information on the concept of worker cooperatives, a huge part of his agenda to transform the American work culture. Now, can worker cooperatives happen here? Maybe. The world's largest cooperative is the Mondragon Corporation of Spain. 81,000 employees, 14.5 billion in revenue. 
Here's an excerpt from a New Yorker article about how Mondragon defies all capitalist narratives and explanations. Quote, Worker-owned cooperatives are often considered both idealistic and inefficient. The model is seen as suitable for mainly upscale grocery stores or boutique bakeries in progressive towns. At a 2019 conference, the economist Larry Summers Boo! characterized co-ops as intrinsically sleepy and short-sighted. Quote, when you put workers in charge of firms and you give them substantial control over the firms, he said, the only thing you do not get is expansion. You get more for the people who are already there. Fuck this guy. Moving on. And yet, Mondragon is not a sleepy grocery store. Its collection of co-ops employs around 80,000 people, and 76% of those who work in manufacturing co-ops are owners. One makes bicycles at an industrial scale. Others make elevators or produce huge industrial machines used in the production of jet engines, rockets, and wind turbines. Mondragon's businesses include schools, a large grocery chain, a catering company, 14 technology R&D centers, and a McKinsey-like consulting firm. In 2021, the network brought in more than 11 billion euros in revenue. The collective enforces 505 types of patents and employs about 2,400 full-time researchers. It also owns subsidiaries in countries like China, Germany, and Mexico, and competes effectively in international markets, winning contracts from firms such as General Electric and Blue Origin. The odds are good that key elements of something within 100 feet of you an espresso maker, a gas grill, a car, were made at Mondragon, end quote. Now, in fairness, no corporation, even Mondragon, exists without controversy. In fact, one of the biggest challenges they've recently faced is an increase in CEO pay relative to the lowest Mondragon worker. It was quite a scandal. A new policy allows CEOs pay of, allows them to be paid, God, I can barely say it. You got this, my guy. What is it? 20 times, 50 times, 100? Six. According to the Economic Policy Institute, CEO pay in America has skyrocketed 1,400% since 1978. And that, quote, CEOs were paid 399 times as much as a typical worker in 2021, end quote. Mondragon workers, on the other hand, tortured themselves over whether to bump the CEO pay ceiling from five and a half to six times the lowest paid worker in the entire cooperative. All right, but you really think this could work in the United States? Worker cooperatives already exist in the United States. In fact, there are more than 600 of them. Again, I recognize it's the same argument that I'm making about labor, right? It's a rounding error, but it is a start. And not only do they work, they can develop alongside labor unions and in some cases support one another. So now let's thread together a few different narratives from the work that we've done together. See, this is different than the neoliberal New Democrat proposals under Bill Clinton that attempted to turn workers into entrepreneurs through capitalist debt models. This is different than trade unions fighting for crumbs that fall from the capitalist table. Millions of workers in other countries are worker owners. In the U.S., it's thousands. Think about our sustainability episodes now. Cooperatives tend to be more sustainability-minded as well. But to get from thousands to millions of workers requires a worker revolution. Now think about the conditions required to promote and sustain a revolution, a permanent revolution, as Leon Trotsky would say. Generative AI is a catalyzing event that is transforming work. The millennial and Z generations are way more socially conscious and digitally savvy. Tens of millions of boomers 
are exiting the workforce as we speak. See ya. Don't let the door hit you on your fucking ass. Inequality is reaching a tipping point. But we also know from Robert Owen's New Harmony experiment, along with countless examples of recessionary behavior, that the one thing American workers want more than anything is a fucking steady paycheck, a secure retirement, health care, and a future for themselves and their families. But deep in our DNA is something else. That palpable notion of the bullshit American dream. And that's part of our split personality that causes us to fight our natural instincts and ultimately settle for what's handed to us. To be a worker with comfort or part of the owner class. That's the tension that has been unresolvable. But the cooperative model says, why not both? Having this conversation does something else. It shifts the conversation, and in doing so, it raises consciousness. Americans may never again see themselves as quote-unquote working class, but that doesn't mean that we can't have class consciousness. Just some food for thought. Support the unions. Raise consciousness. Don't just fight the power. Be the power. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Lots of resources for this one, folks. A lot of articles. Only one book where I dip back into uh, Nelson Lichtenstein's book just to refresh my memory on the history of Taft-Hartley. But a lot of resources, a lot of articles, a lot of facts and data to back up uh, these assertions here. And I hope that this was taken in the spirit in which it's intended. It's never just a thing. It's always a suite of things. Like we say, the conditions for revolution are multiple. So you do need the bureaucratic class. You need the Fabians that are in the system that know how to run shit so that when we take it over, they can actually affect change within the system and begin to gradually reform Everything like the legal system and elections, all the things that are going to matter. But you also need that consciousness, right? That class consciousness. And it's one of the most interesting dynamics in the United States, how we perceive ourselves. Not only do we still perceive ourselves as the good guys, I'm speaking in general terms, obviously, but we do kind of see ourselves as the good guys doing good in the world, spreading democracy with our fists and our bombs. Here's some democracy while I wipe out hundreds of thousands of your people. The ones left will love it. You know, we wrap ourselves in the flag, do the, do things in the name of Jesus Christ and think that we're the good guys. I mean, it's an amazing internal hypocrisy that we somehow resolve in our conscience. And we also see ourselves as industrious, frontier spirit entrepreneurs. But again, all of those great innovations where entrepreneurs have benefited from the largesse of, of government spending. I mean, we spend like no other. Those entrepreneurs, those iterators are not innovators. They build things in creative companies and they find effective and efficient solutions to work with this stuff that was birthed in the public sector. But, you know, we talk about public-private partnerships, you know, and how that's the wave of the future. It's always fucking been that way. Literally always been that way. Business doesn't get off the ground without the support of government. 
And nobody invests in businesses unless there is a stable and mature government and a legal system that protects private property. Now, I'm sure you're sick of me droning on about the socialism series, but hopefully you can see how some of the lessons from not just that series, but lessons in the past and all the work that we've done together are beginning to coalesce to help us reframe conversations and think about things a little bit differently. It's important to know that I am not shitting on any of the labor movements and actions in, in, that are happening right now. They are really hopeful, especially in the way that they're being talked about. But if you take, right, Amazon, they were threatened the strike. They got some of the stuff that they wanted. That was an effective tool for them to, you know, to dangle in, in, front, of, uh, in front of the corporate class. But if you take the Screen Actors Guild and the writers out of the mix, you still, there's, there's about 150,000 people that are on strike in this country. And 13,000 of them are brand new as of this month because of the United Auto Workers deal, right? It's a pitiful few because we don't have the mechanism. There aren't enough of us that are unionized that can do it. And the unions that remain that are that are strong, like, you know, I'm here in New York. It's still it's still cops and, and teachers. Those are and healthcare workers. Those are the big ones. But you know what, man? Teachers walk off, healthcare workers walk off, even if the cops walked off the fucking job. The pandemonium that would ensue is exactly the type of disruption that real leftists are looking for. But a lot of us would be fucked. I mean, just fucked if that happened. And that's always the thing that they, that the corporate class is able to sell through the media to be like, this is an act of violence against the American economy and the very stability that most Americans are looking for. And they're not wrong because 90% of us don't have that type of protection. So you can see how these narratives grow over time. The antipathy towards trade unions in this country is so fucking real. I happen to live in an area where I know a lot of, like real estate dominates the economy in New York, right? So I know a lot of people that are in real estate. There is not a single person in real estate or who derives their income from real estate or is real estate adjacent, which is like almost fucking everybody that does not absolutely hate the trades. The fucking unions, they say, making the cost of everything go up. The reason it's so expensive to live in New York is because of the fucking unions and the teachers' pensions and paying a guy to fucking hammer one nail and take a six-hour break and another guy who just has to sit there and watch the guy take the break. These are, this are the legends that, that build over time. And some of it became true because of the corruption in the unions, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, right? That became emblematic throughout the 1970s of the real anti-union movement that raised, that reared its ugly head after it had already reared up, you know, prior to the depression. But these things become calcified over time in the way that we view labor versus the corporate class. So how do you ignite class consciousness and how do you have a, re how do you create revolutionary conditions when even people that you would need to revolt kind of hate workers, right? I mean, it's a, that's why I always say like the capitalist class, this fucking war is over. They want it. You can't overthrow this system. It runs the whole fucking world. But what if you could plug into the system and turn it around? So people are, you know, have been very open that they don't love my take on overthrowing the Democratic Party from inside to gain control of the Democratic apparatus because it's so mature, because that's the only way it's either burn the whole fucking country down or fucking just do, take control of this shit. 
and turn it around. So that's the proposition that I'm always laying out. Well, here's Mondragon in Spain that has networks all over the world that basically did just that. And not only now people will look at it and be like, that's fucking Spain. It's a different culture. It is a different culture, but it's a different culture also within Spain. The rest of the country, but you know, it comes from the Basque region of Spain, and it's a very different sort of ethos there as it relates to work that you can't find in other parts of Spain, right? Because capitalism has corrupted some of the some of the the the, the core pillars and foundations of the, of the European economy. But the Mondragon Corporation, eighty one thousand strong, they do it differently. They see it differently, and they weather recessions and pandemics way better than all of the other capital. You don't see the boom and bust cycles to, to the degree that you do. They'll be affected by it because they're in the greater market economy that runs the world. But the effect on the working class, the people that are there, isn't as severe because they can weather the storm because they do things like save. They give people pensions and they have benefits and people are willing to show up even in the worst of circumstances because they're owners. That's an amazing thing. So imagine it's not 600 in the United States, right? Imagine it's 60,000 cooperatives. That's a revolution, but it's quiet and it can be done. I used to laugh. So I used to go to the Left Forum events in New York and see Professor Rick Wolf speak. I didn't laugh. I would be, I'd watch him. I'm always enthralled by his speeches and, and he's introduced me to a number of great topics and the resources that the Left Forum when they used to have it in, in person were amazing, right? And at Left Forum was something that was spun out from his organization, Democracy at Work, I think. It might be an independent organization that they support or vice versa, whatever. But he would talk about, that. there always seemed to be the capstone to his arguments. He would talk about these worker cooperatives and I didn't get it. I looked at it and said, that's lovely, I kind of had Larry Summers' view of it, which is like, yeah, I mean, it's awesome maybe for what is like Kroger's to do it or, you know, some little grocery chain. But, you know, what are we going to do? Turn GE into a fucking cooperative? Well, maybe had GE been a cooperative, they'd be in a better place. See, the fallacy is that creativity and innovation and investment can only come from the top 10% that they have some sort of magic fucking insight and clue into how to organize the world and run the world and and run this company. It has to be a secret cabal of people that work you know, with the board of directors behind closed walls and we'll let you know what happens on the other side of it. When in reality, eh, the workers know what's up. And a lot of those people came from the working class into the boardroom because they're the only new people that knew how to actually do shit. And how many times have you seen a corporate board or you know an executive team that is so empty and devoid all they know is the financialization side of the economy and therefore they can they know how to balance the books and and you know appeal to shareholders and have earnings calls and whatever are they the people that you're expecting to innovate the the Steve Jobs of the world they they're the outliers they're they're the ones that we look at and we're like that's what a CEO is and that's what innovation is, and that's you know that's one guy out of 350 fucking million people and we're still talking about him he's been dead a while we're like, that's the American entrepreneur. No, it's not. The American entrepreneur is on the fucking factory line, is in, you know, at a service desk somewhere, writing a piece of code, figuring out how to do things better, faster. Imagine if that person was plugged into the system and had control and ownership over it. It's fucking compelling, man. 
And I think that what you're going to see when you see startups among the millennial generation and Gen Z, they're going to think about this shit. If we raised, if we did nothing more than raise the consciousness that that was an opportunity that millennials and Gen Zers could do that to transform small companies, but also start small companies or enter the, the gig economy. If you think that 31% of the fucking, uh, the economy is comprised of gig workers and freelancers and independent people, well, you can imagine a situation that's a revolutionary condition. You can imagine a situation where they all got together in a cooperative if the framework was there. So the timing may be right. And maybe I should have listened more closely to Rick Wolf when he was speaking before. But I feel like we've had to go through this journey in order to arrive at these places to be opportunistically aware when they present themselves. So good luck to the UAW workers. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you dig where I'm coming from. And now please tell me, write in your, your, first of all, how you felt about this, how you felt about this take, what you think the state of union organizing is, what your problems are with unions, what you love about unions. Are you in a union? What's the upside? What's the downside? Do you work for a cooperative? Talk to me. Do you think that this is just tilting at windmills? Or do you think that this has some real potential? Let's discuss. Until next time. You got the brilliant Manny Faces behind the glass. You got 99, who will be back into the studio, having recovered fully from COVID by next week. And you got me, Max. I'm the host. Tom McGovern writes the original music. But this thing is really built by and built for the unfuckers. Thank you to all of our members who support us. Go to unftr.com to find all the ways that you can interact with us. Hoo-ha!